You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Together. Once again, that's Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and uh, seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Providence. Uh, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, I just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here, uh, and I hope you enjoy your time with us this morning. So uh, as Eric said, we've been in uh, the series of Exodus, and what we do each year is, uh, as an elder team, uh, so we'll do it at the end of this year in preparation for the following calendar year, spend some time um, praying, seeking Lord, developing a sermon calendar for the next year. And, and one of the things that we try to do is leave some space so that in between, like for instance, this year we're doing uh, kind of a one, one long series that's broken up into three parts, but through the book of Exodus. But in times past, we've done shorter books, let's say Philippians, and that's going to be for the spring. And then before we jump right into another text, we try to leave a little bit of space for what we call like a standalone sermon. And the reason for that is that, well, number one, one of the reasons that we do sermon series is because we don't, we don't believe that to be spirit-led means you must be spontaneous, um, the, the, the Lord is simultaneously, uh, spontaneously doing things, but the Lord, more, more than anything, is a God of planning. Like, for instance, if you haven't read the Bible, God has plans. He meets those plans. You know, he, he does what needs to be done for those plans to come to pass. You know, one of the reasons we know this is because, you know, hundreds of years before he does something, he'll warn you, hey, when you see this happen, it was my plan, you know, and then, and then you kind of go back and say, oh, the Lord planned this 700 years ago. So he's way better than us at like sermon calendars, let's say. It doesn't mean it's not spirit led. On the flip side, we do recognize that there are times where we, without the foresight of the Lord in perfection, there might be some times where it's like, hey, we might need to talk about this issue that we didn't know was going to come up. And that's why we leave a little bit of room for standalones. And this morning is one of those scheduled standalones. Um, and I want to address something this morning that's been on my mind actually for a pretty fair amount of time, uh, longer than just this year. Uh, and when I say it, I think that maybe it'll be something that's been on your mind too. How do you live faithfully as a Christian when times are crazy? How do you live in crazy times as a Christian? And in particular, what I want to focus on is how do you combat the anxiety that comes with living in the clown world, you know, living in the crazy time? How do you do that? I want to focus on that. And the reason I want to focus on that uh, is not just because it's been on my heart, but because through conversations, through discussions, through prayer, I think it's been on many of our hearts. I don't think that something I'm going to say is going to be only particularly for, for, for us, but maybe perhaps some of it. And I think 
it will be helpful. So before I do, let me pray for us. If you'll bow your heads, I just want to pray that the Spirit of God would speak to us through his word. Father, we, we come before you just so grateful um, that we don't have to swim around in the dark, but that your word's been preserved for us for thousands of years so that we can go directly to your word. Lord, we, we reject any kind of chronological snobbery that would make us feel like our time is so unique that we need, we need something different than your word. We thank you that your word is timeless and true and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask now, give us humble hearts, give us receptive hearts, give us ears that are willing to hear, give us eyes to see. And finally, Lord, I just pray that you administer to us uniquely as we so desperately need, that we would not see anxiety as uh, in, in in a corner, compartmentalized as some people's issue, but we would instead see it as it truly is that we all have this struggle and that you would minister to us deeply through the power of your word that we might receive joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to start with Paul. So Paul's letter to the Philippians here, along with his history with the church at Philippi, it gives us this indication that the time and location that Paul and the Philippian church lived in would have given one, at minimum, this is euphemistic, a great cause for anxiety. That, That their time that they lived in would have been what you might consider crazy, or at least a little crazy. And I want to spend some time making that case. So number one, Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison cell where he was chained for preaching the gospel. This is what we call a prison epistle. And we don't call it a prison epistle because he's writing to people that were in jail. It's a prison epistle because the author himself was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, and he's writing to the churches to give them an update not only about himself, but also to give them encouragement uh, to be faithful in the Christian life. Paul has many prison epistles, which should immediately tip you off that he's a kind of a unique guy. You know, it's like if, if you've ever been to jail... Not going to tell you my stories, but if you've ever been to jail, uh, you usually don't think about writing letters to anybody, but who's going to get you out? You know, like you want that one phone call. You don't typically like call the church, like, hey, I just want to make sure you guys are good. I want to encourage you in the Lord. You know, you want to call somebody to get you out of there. Paul's always writing to the churches. He's a unique cat. Number two, the persecution of the early church is evident, not just given the accounts of the book of Acts, which if you read the book of Acts, they're going through a lot. But also if you read the epistles, there's a constant refrain from whether it's Paul or Peter or John or James, an encouragement to stand fast in the face of persecution. And then we have historical accounts that have been given down to us. One chief among those is a man named Josephus. And Josephus was a Jewish historian, which is widely recognized by Christian and non-Christian alike, as writing down what the time was like for the early church disciples. And his summation is that not only are the Christians facing intense persecution, but also the Roman Empire itself is filled with a constant state of flux, peril, difficulty, tumult. You have Caesars that are rising, Caesars that are, that are falling. You have at one point, there's three Caesars kind of fighting it out for who's going to take over the throne. And all of that has a way to impact the early church Christians. And I'll say that because all of our world's issues also have a way of impacting us, right? 
Now, all of this is under the, in the context of what the actual church is dealing with just on an everyday, day-to-day, persecution and fear, spiritual battles, sinful activity in the church, division and infighting, coupled with a Roman empire that's in constant wars, betrayal, conspiracy, evil practices, intense subjugation of various people groups. It's just not exactly what we would consider like a fairy tale time, Okay. Things aren't, you know, this isn't, you know, a great moment in in the lives of these people. They're going through some difficulty. Secondarily, I want to mention to you what Paul says about each individual church, and hopefully this will do two things for you. One is to point out that, you know, not everything's peachy keen in the life of the church members, but also I hope that it encourages you that you're not the only one who's not exactly nailing it on the whole Christianity front. You've ever felt that way? I know we're in church, but you can be honest. You're not exactly like killing it on the whole, hey, I'm a really good Christian, um, Paul gives us this indication of like, he is really killing it. He's writing letters in jail. I'm cool with being, you know, jailed up for the gospel. When you read the letters to the churches though, you're like, oh, this sounds like my family, you know, like more Jerry Springer-esque, like, you know what I mean? That's what you get to see. I'll give you an examples. Uh, for instance, in the church at Corinth, there are people that are getting drunk on the communion wine in church. That's real. You should look this up. Like can't even wait for Sunday night football. They have to do it in the morning. Paul says they were engaging in sexual immorality that it was so bad that he didn't even want to write it down. There were various divisions and factions in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. So like we have four different segments of, cha- of chairs. It would be like each one represented one of our guys that preached. And when like, let's say, for instance, when I preached, only one group was really listening. The rest were heckling me. It's happening in Corinth. In, his, in the church of Rome, there's a division between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's an extreme division in the church because of the Emperor Claudius and some of the things that are going on there. In Colossae, there's false Gnostic teachers that have come in trying to deceive believers. So they got false teachers in the church. In Ephesus, we know that there's such idolatry in this city. There's goddess Diana, or also Artemis, that there were temple prostitutes. There's some really dark things going on in Ephesus, so much so that Paul finds himself in the middle of a riot where the whole city's rioting over his ministry of the gospel. In the church at Galatia, Paul tells us that Judaizers had crept into the church to subvert the gospel of grace and to make it a gospel of works, so much so that some of the men of the church were creeping into the showers and peeking in because they were so committed to circumcision, making sure you were being righteous, if you catch my drift. Dead serious, read your Bible. Paul then will send Timothy and Titus to different churches in order to bring order to them because they've begun to fray. One of those includes the town of Crete, which Paul quotes one of their own prophets and says that one of their own prophets says that the Cretans are liars, beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now you would expect Paul to say something like, but not in Christ, we love them anyway. But Paul says, this testimony is true. (laughs) He actually says, yeah, they're liars, beasts, and lazy gluttons. So you got a lot of work on your hands. Now, these are just a few examples of the context that Paul was dealing with in his ministerial life. But now I want to read to you what was Paul's personal, not pastoral, his personal life like as he tried to live in the context of the Roman Empire in this day. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to read verses 9 through 10. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, I don't know if you are anything like me, but that's like not what you want to look 
for on your pastor's Twitter feed, right? It's like, how's church been going? Sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him he has set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul says, ministry for a while felt like God had sentenced them to death. It was so bad, so difficult that they weren't sure they were going to make it through. Okay, he goes on, though, and he tells you a little bit more. Now, he's going to tell you a little bit of details about how difficult life was. He doesn't want to do this, but he uses this as a way to justify his ministry to a group of people that he had, he had planted the church in Corinth, and yet now he's being questioned by these false apostles, these false teachers who are trying to say, Paul, you don't need to trust him. He's all in it for himself. You know, he's not really the guy that you think he is. One of their biggest uh, issues with Paul is he suffers too much. If he was really of God, God wouldn't let him suffer like that, right? Well, Paul's going to use his sufferings as a way to say, you can trust me. Watch what he says here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, listen to this, I'm speaking as a fool. He doesn't want to do this. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Check this out. I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says. Now watch this. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's not like a makeup kit, okay? 40 lashes less one would have been being lashed with a whip 39 times. That happened to him five times. So you can do the math on that lots of times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Again, a little bit different than you're thinking. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from those other things, there is also the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Okay. Now, why did I want to read that? I want to read that, and the reason I wanted to start here before we jump into Philippians is because I want you to know Paul at least well enough to believe that he's a trustworthy source when it comes to crazy times and hard times. I want you to be able to read Paul and think he's not just kind of, you know, since Paul kind of met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's easy for us to be like, yeah, but I've never talked to the Lord risen, the risen Jesus face to face. Of course he's that bold. And I don't want us to do that. I want us to see, okay, he's, he actually experiences some really tough times. He's not like floating along on the Christian cloud. Everything gets blessed. In fact, it's the opposite. Everything he deals with, it seems like he's got the inverse Midas touch. You know, it just turns to bad. And the reason that that's so important is so that we can see a through line between what Paul's dealing with in his own life and in his own day and what we're dealing with in our own life and in our own day. The last few years of life for us as 21st century Americans has been like going through a societal shift that usually takes decades or centuries, but it's literally been within years. And so if you feel like you're all discombobulated, I want to affirm to you that's happening. You're not imagining it. You really are in the boat in the storm and you really are seasick. 
That's real. And these I could talk more about, and I wish I had the time. It's Whether it's cultural or political or economical, all of those things are at once, not just one arm of the, or one leg of the three-legged stool, but all of those legs are wobbling, and we're just trying to keep our seat on the chair. That's what's happening right now. And there are these certain points in history that we would call inflection points. You can read your history books, and you can see them. You know, famously, and far be it from me to quote Vladimir Lenin, the communist, but he was right about this. He said... There are, uh, there are decades in which nothing happens, and there are days in which decades happen. And that's true. They're called inflection points. It's where everything kind of rapidly speeds up. It's been leading unto this moment, and that's what we're living through. Now, the reason that this is important and for us to draw a through line with Paul is because what happens when you live in an inflection moment is every generation that experience it, experiences it feels like it's much worse than anyone else who has ever experienced it. That's part of the problem. And the reason I say that it's a problem is not because it doesn't feel that way. It certainly does. It's a problem because by defining it that way, we are led to self-justification. Something like this. We have a unique reason to ignore the word of God because we're in a different time. Things are too crazy now. We need something new. In layman's terms, it would be something like this. Okay, Paul dealt with the Roman legions, but did he deal with the iPhone? Right? And that's kind of funny, but kind of true, right? It's like you got this whole web, interconnected world. It's like right now in your pocket, there's like billions of people that are at your fingertips vying for your attention. It's an odd moment. But we need to remind ourselves, no, the word of God is timeless. We both have a responsibility and an invitation to be obedient to God's word at all times. And this responsibility and invitation will lead to human flourishing in life, and the rejection of it will lead us further down the dregs of anxiety. Secondarily, I want to point out there is a difference between providing a reason and providing an excuse. I want to do the former while rejecting the latter. I want to provide a reason for why you and I may be experiencing the anxiety that we all know is there but don't really know how to put our finger on while rejecting that we have an excuse on why we're unfaithful or why we execute sinful behavior on the basis of that anxiety or difficult circumstances. Reasons can be helpful. Reasons clear the air. They bring clarity and they give voice to the reality that surrounds us. Excuses, however, are unhelpful. They preclude us of our human responsibility And they use the difficult circumstances that are very real as scapegoats for us for our own sinfulness and our own unbelief. I want to reject the excuse. I want to give the reason. I want to ask the Spirit to give us the clarity so then we can address it. And the reason that I started with Paul is because I want you to see Paul is a worthy source to go to. Paul is a worthy source to go to. Because maybe, just maybe, Paul may have gone through even crazier times. And he writes through the ages in order to give to us a little bit of insight for our crazy times. So let's read now. Eric's already read it for us, but I want to start again. Philippians 4. Remember where Paul's writing from. He's in jail, and he's writing to this church in Philippi. Let's start in verse 4. He says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You got to love this, right? What should we be anxious about? No thing. What should we pray about? All things. That's a correlating relationship, isn't it? Like he's, he's giving you these inverses so you can say, okay, I know the anxieties are on you. Throw those away at the feet of the Lord and pray about everything. We'll get to that in a second. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, a handful of commands. We're going to read through three of them. What are they? Number one, rejoice. Christian, we have a reason to be joyful. And the realities that undergird your joy and my joy, if you're in Christ, are deeper than the realities that are seeking to squelch your joy right now. Paul is telling us we need to tap into the deep, real, true gospel realities that undergird our joy and to respond with rejoicing in the face of what is also very real, namely the difficult circumstances. So we don't look at difficult circumstances and say, oh, they're not really there or they're not really bad or you know, just kind of playing games. No, we say, oh, those are really, really bad. Here's the thing though. What's deeper and more true than the circumstances that you are facing are the realities of what Christ has won for you on the cross and that are yours in his name. That's more true. What's more true than a crazy uh, nation, a crazy world, crazy kingdom? The kingdom of Christ is a deeper and a, a more true reality than the crazy kingdoms. That makes sense? In times of crisis, the immediate becomes the ultimate. And of course, this is necessary for crisis, right? I, when I was talking to the 9 a.m., I said, in the middle of the night, if you, you, know, you wake up because you hear a sound and your wife kind of rustles you awake, like, what is that? You know? And you're just trying to trying to shake yourself into reality. Go go look at it, you know, because you're just sitting there. Like, at least if you're like me, I need at least like 30 seconds to know what's happening. Go go figure it out. And in that moment, it's really important that when you go out into the living room to figure out what the noise was, that you're not thinking about like the scores to the game last night, your budget. Like it's important you're not going out there, weapon in hand, whatever that weapon may be, and you're thinking about the budgetary cycle. You're thinking about what you ate last night. You're thinking about whether or not your kid's report card is really up to snuff. No, because crisis brings immediacy and whatever the immediate threat is, that's the ultimate. And that's actually a gift from God. That's important. But in times of prolonged crisis, it becomes a real problem for the immediate to be the ultimate. Because we have a tendency in times of prolonged crisis, I don't know, a crisis in the middle of the night that lasts, let's say, 15 minutes. And for most of us, I'll just say in my example, you know, it wasn't a criminal. It turns out it's just a photograph that your wife put command strips on the wall and it fell down. You know, that's for me. And thank God that that didn't prolong. But what happens when the crisis prolongs and it's not just a few minutes, but it's a day, 24 hours, 48 hours, a week long, a month long, months long, years long. Well, now we see what happens is what happens to soldiers often whenever they're on tours of battle and in duty is that they can't turn off that immediacy. And so everything becomes the urgent. There's no way to live in a normal circumstance because everything is ultimate. And the reason for this is because in times of the prolonged crisis, everything gets clouded and shrouded by crisis emergency. Handle it now. Now, as a side note, and I think it's important for me to say pastorally, in the times of cultural crisis that it's prolonged, there are people, listen to me, that stand to gain 
by keeping large swaths of the society obsessive about the immediate. We need to know this. When people are in an emergency state, they necessarily must forget everything else in order to deal with the emergency at hand. But this also makes us vulnerable because we get blinders on and we only see that which is in front of us and we're vulnerable to predatory behavior as nefarious forces seek to force us into a perpetual fight and flight, even though that's not how you were meant to live. That's both spiritually true and biologically true. You can go ask your doctor, is it a good thing if your body never stops releasing adrenaline all day long? It's not good. In fact, it's deadly. So what does the Christian do? We reject the call for constant and perpetual emergency attention so that we can return our attention to that which is eternal and rejoice. Why do I say that? That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He is in prison. He's in a situation that you and I would most likely think, emergent, immediate, write letters, get out of here, this could go bad for you. He's not just in any prison, he's in a Roman prison. And the Romans aren't keen on keeping these Christian preachers, who they see as rabble-rousers, they see as insurrectionist types, they see as harmful to the state, they don't like them very much. He's in the most emergent situation that you and I may have ever faced, and what is his response? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He turns his mind to eternal realities when everything around him says, you better fix the problem you're in. And that's what we ought to do too. Why is that important? Well, because eternal realities produce eternal joy. But temporary victories only produce temporary joy. Or temporary realities only produce temporary joy. What I mean by that is even if you can beat the day with the current realities you're facing, even if you can beat the daily headlines with the current realities you're facing, that will only last so long. But it's the eternal realities that are a wellspring of life that flow up within you. Jesus said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water if you trust in me. It's the deeper realities. I say all that to say Christians laugh more. In the, you're like, no, it's not a laughing matter. I know it's not a laughing matter. You got to tap into the eternal reality so that you can laugh. This is Proverbs 31 woman. You ever read this? I know we always only read it for some of the, you know, women's ministry stuff, but it says that she looks into the future and laughs. Does that mean that you look into the future and that it's always going to be good? I'm sure she looked into the future sometimes and thought it's not very good. But what did she do? She laughed. Why? Because she knew Christ. When you know the Lord, you can look into the future because even if you see the darkest of dark, you know that He's with you. Or as he told his disciples, I'm with you in the boat. Oh, you have little faith. <laughs> the storm is all around you. Laugh more. I'm here. Another way to put that was Jesus was like, hey, I have a big plan. I have to, you know, I got something I actually got to get to. Did you think I was going to let the whole boat collapse? All right. I don't have a lot of time. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In times of crisis, reason goes out the window. And oftentimes, reasonable people get bullied and marginalized as the emotions and base desires of the moment take over. Mob mentality is a real thing. Now, if you've never experienced this before, I would just not encourage you. This is not wise. But try this out for size one day. Your married friends, and especially if they've been married for a long time, get into a heated argument in front of you. Try to step in with reason and see how it goes for you. They're fighting not about what you think they're fighting about. You know, you're like, listen, guys, it's just a movie. No big deal. No, they're fighting about 15 years ago, something they've been fighting about for 15 years. 
And they're still bringing it up. They may have never said it, but here you come in with reason. And they're just ready. They'll turn on you quickly. That's how it goes. Nonetheless, the Christian cannot and should not ever abandon reason. If anything, listen to me, we ought to be thinking more critically, more deeply about the things that are going on around us, and we should be doing so for the glory of God. Is it reasonable to believe that because global events have caused mass hysteria, that we have a good and immediate cause for alienating and demonizing our neighbor that we liked like 10 minutes ago? Is that reasonable, anybody else? Of course it's not reasonable, but we're doing it in mass. Is it reasonable to assume that because your, your neighbor's masking preferences are different than yours, then that means that they are anathema to you and your family? Like, listen to me. Not what do you think about that issue. Is it reasonable that they should now be cut off from you altogether? You're holding your kids back. Don't go over there with them. It's those people. Is it reasonable for us to immediately rethink and reposition our long-held theological positions simply because a crisis has hit? Of course it isn't, and yet it's happening. And why does it happen? Because in times of crisis, your instinct has a way of taking over, and your base desires, emotions, start being what rules the day. And for the Christians, we say, no, by the power of the Spirit of Christ that has given us the mind of Christ, our reason will govern our instinct, not vice versa. Or as Paul says, he says, I beat my body into subjection. My body serves me, not vice versa. I tell my body what to do, not vice versa. You see, godly reason is ruled by the Spirit of God. And to lead me to my third point here from Paul's words is godly reason doesn't lead you to frenetic action. It leads you to prayer. Godly reason in times of crisis, doesn't lead you to frenetic action, but to prayer. What does Paul say? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There are many types of prayer in your Bible. Prayers of adoration, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession. Paul is, is encouraging a specific type of prayer here. It's the prayer of supplication. It's a prayer of petition. It's when we take something, petitioning God, we bring it before him, and we ask him to move on our behalf and to intervene in human history, both for our good and for his glory. That's the specific type of prayer he's talking about. And this kind of prayer is important because it's a weight transfer. Anxiety is when you feel all of the weight and you're trying to deal with it. This kind of prayer is when you lay that weight at the throne of God and you leave it there and walk away. That's what this kind of prayer looks like. Anxiety exists in the human heart because we run up against certain circumstantial things that we are experiencing that are beyond our capability to even interpret, much less change. You ever had that moment? I would do what needs to be done to change this. I don't even know what's going on. You ever had that moment? We feel paralyzed by those moments. And we feel threatened and paralyzed all at once. I don't know what to do, and so I should, should I move or not? And I'm kind of worried that this thing might overtake me. Enter prayer. Paul tells us we have to learn the art of laying our anxieties before his throne, shifting the weight that we're feeling back onto the only one who really can do something about it. The result will be that either A, God will give us the discernment and the courage to do or say whatever he desires for us to do or say so that we don't have to try to figure that out on our own. 
B, he will tell us to, like he told Moses, just be silent and I'll do this. Just keep it quiet over there and I'll take care of it. Or C, neither of the two, but what we can be certain of is that he will hear us and he will respond. Now, why do I say that last part? Because Paul teaches us that when we pray like this, what we get is not always what we're after, but what we need. Listen to verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the key. Much of anxiety comes from not being able to make sense of our current circumstances, not understanding what's happening or what, not understanding what we need to do to change it. If you've ever suffered, you probably have gone through this. If I could just understand why God's permitted it, I can move forward. If I could just understand why I'm going through it, then I can deal with it. If I can just understand what I'm supposed to do in the midst of this, then I can handle it. And Paul says that what we need more than understanding is peace. We need a peace that surpasses understanding. You may not know that's what you need, but it is, and you're even vocalizing it. You're just, you're just leaving it off the end of the sentence. You're saying, if I had understanding, I could have peace. And God says, if you're not going to get this, I can still give you this. Now, to tie this in with reason, is you, here's, here's why anxiety is a real struggle. Sometimes suffering's unreasonable, and you're trying to reason your way through it, And it's tough when you can't find the A to B to see logical chain links that bring you to understanding, which makes you more anxious. I got to know. And Paul is actually telling you not to reject your reason. He's saying that 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 reaction that we have to run away from God, that reaction to try to fix it ourselves, is actually unreasonable. And here's why. The most reasonable response to any crazy times is to trust God, period. If God is who he says he is, and listen to me, friends, he is, then the most reasonable thing that we can do is trust him when it doesn't make sense. The unreasonable thing to do would be to trust yourself. Now, I wish I could spend more time with that, but let me just briefly say, why do I say you shouldn't trust yourself? Because if you're honest and if you're self-aware, here's what you know about yourself. No one's let you down as much as you've let yourself down. Go back and look at your last 10 years worth of New Year's resolutions. And then look at God's record. Are we just reasoning through him? When we reason through him, we should say, he's trustworthy. I don't have to understand to know that he's trustworthy. And then he brings you the peace. So in conclusion with, the, with those commandments, and then we're going to close out here. Choose joy. Think more deeply. Pray more fervently. Choose joy. Notice he doesn't say be joyful. He says rejoice. That's an action, Right? Be joyful is a state of being. Rejoice is you can choose to rejoice even if you're not feeling it. You ever had that moment? If you're married, you know this. You choose love. You're not always feeling in love. Choose joy. That's rejoicing. Think deeply because you've been given the mind of Christ and pray fervently. Okay. Now, I, added, I wanted to uh, get through these last two verses because I do not think that they are disconnected and they're so important. Let's read it. Eight and nine. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, Whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
The God of peace being with you is the peace that surpasses all understanding, by the way. It's the presence of God with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the promise of Christ. But what is this all about? Is he just saying, think good thoughts? Right? It's like I could have gone to any, like, self-help Barnes and Noble section and gotten that. Like, think good things, not bad things. So much deeper than that. Remember, this is in the context of a whole letter. What he says here in chapter 4, he is mirroring something he said in chapter 2. It's not going to be up on the screen behind me, but let me just tell you what's, what he said in chapter 2. This is what the theologians call the Christ hymn. He's just told them before, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me put in layman's terms how I am connecting the two of these. Who is more true than Christ, Paul asks. Who is more honorable than Christ? Who is more just than Christ? Who is more pure than Christ? Who is more lovely than Christ? Who is more commendable than Christ? Who is more excellent than Christ? Who is more worthy of praise than Christ? And he's telling you, think on him. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ, is that your mind is ruminating, meditating on the truth of who Jesus is constantly. Because here's how anxiety brews. It's ruminating and meditating on every other thing that is less lovely, less commendable, less just. And that's a euphemism. Sometimes it's outright unjust, outright not lovely, outright horrid. And when we think on those things for long enough, we think, how can I fix it? How can I change it? Rather than what Paul says is, think about how Christ has already changed it. Think about how he's already died to change it. Think about how the gospel is true. And that even though you're in the not yet portion of the story, that what's coming for you is real. Let me give you an example. The battle of anxiety is a battle for the mind. It's a battle of the mind. This is a quote from Robert Murray McShane, a missionary, and he said this. This is just an example of ruminating on Christ. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I want you to think about this. What if you thought about that reality all day? That the literal Christ, risen and reigning, is praying for you now. I get encouraged when you guys pray for me. If I could hear the Son of God interceding, I'd feel like I was a 12-story building. I would feel indestructible. And he's saying, yet distance makes no difference. He is doing that right now. Anxiety breeds upon lesser truths, half-truths, joy, peace, a peace that surpasses understanding is the fruit of an eternal truth, rock solid forever and ever. See, the lie in the scheme of the enemy is something like this. And listen to me, I believe this sometimes, and I don't, I don't know why. 
The lie in the scheme of the enemy looks something like this. You live in a crazy time and in a crazy world, and you are going to live by the terms that that culture gives you. You live in this culture of decay. You live in this culture of death. You live in this time of confusion and anxiety. So you will be confused. You will be anxious. And here's what the Bible says. No, I'm a kingdom and citizen of heaven. Yes, I concede. I am going to be in the world until Jesus returns or calls me home. But that doesn't mean I am of it. I am not of the world. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulations. But that's not the end of the sentence. He said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Listen, friends, our children do not have to be constantly uncertain about their identity, constantly uncertain about the future. Our friendships do not have to be marked by constant suspicion and selfish tendencies. Our schedules do not have to be filled with frivolous errands and mind-numbing entertainment. Our generosity does not have to be beholden to the whims of economic downturns and budgetary cycles. Our joy does not have to be contingent on the results of future political elections or daily headlines from media outlets. Our peace does not have to be dictated by the state of geopolitics. No, all of those things are rooted in Christ. He is all in all, and that's it. Finally, the five little words that I ignored, but I ignored them for a purpose, are found in verse number five at the end. They seem out of place, but they are the place. Paul encourages the church at Philippi by saying this, the Lord is at hand. Every generation since Christ's ascension has felt this reality in their hearts. I was reading the other day, Martin Luther said that he was certain that God would not tarry another hundred years, and he gave an entire book of why. And you know what happened when I read it? I was like, if I lived at that time, I'd be like, yep, that's legit. He's on the way. And we've all made jokes about this. Even I have, you know, 88 reasons why the Lord's coming back in 88. You guys remember that old book? We've made jokes of this, and we've considered it folly to do this. Here's what I want to say. No. No. To feel like you are in the end is not only experientially permissible, it is theologically sound. Paul said the Lord was at the door. Peter said that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord, and a day is like a thousand years. He said, don't fall asleep. He's at the door. Your very Bible ends with, behold, I am coming quickly. That's what Jesus says at the end of your Bible, the very last thing, the one thing he wants you to remember, I'm at the door. And woe to us if we don't cling to this fact as not just something that sobers us up, but more importantly, as our most deep and sincere hope. Friends, the ultimate reality that destroys anxiety is that our king is coming. There should be nothing more comforting to the Christian than this. Nothing that calms your anxieties more effectively. Nothing that scrapes you off the floor of despair more quickly than this statement. The Lord is at hand. The Lord Jesus is coming soon. The Lord Jesus makes everything right. We should say, as the Bible says at the very end, Revelation chapter 23, let the spirit of the bridegroom, that's us, say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Friends, when you're in crazy times, you need to remind yourself, you know what's more important than the plans you have for your kids? I have little kids, so I'm not speaking out of turn. You know what's, more, what's better than the plans that you have for your kids? If Jesus were to return. But no, I have big, what, they could never get married. Listen to me, the marriage supper of the lamb is going to be better than my little party I'm going to throw for my daughter one day. 
I promise you. Kids, if you're in the room and you're like, easy for you to say, old man. Listen, Christ is better than that. I can't articulate to you how much better. It's not like grades of eight versus nine on a one to 10 scale. I'm talking like there's this sandcastle we're making when we go to Crystal Beach and then there's the kingdom of God, cosmic. I want you to go and do the math. If you, if for, for me, on read Revelation 21, it gives you the dimensions of the city of God. Do the math on that and figure out how big that city is. And then I want you to picture us going to Crystal later by Bolivar and making sandcastles. That's the kind of gradations. Paul says it like this. This slight momentary affliction is like nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Friends, for the sake of time, I want to leave you with this. The Lord is at hand. And that's great news. It's not just great news. It's life-changing news. There is no bad day that we're going to have here that will compare to the eternal days that are to come in joy. And I want to invite you into that because here's what I know about myself is, yes, I've been anxious these last few years. But the number one reason that I'm anxious is that I'm not believing the realities that are way more real than the six o'clock news. And I need to, I need to be reminded of it just like you. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray you take my feeble attempts to articulate your majesty. And that, Holy Spirit, you'd make it effective. Holy Spirit, give us heavenly eyes to see. Give us a soul that longs for you. As a church, my king, I pray that when we hear the Lord is at hand, our heart leaps with anticipation. And if it doesn't, Lord, give us eyes to see just how wonderful that reality is for you to be here with us. And then, Lord, remind us that even though we cannot see you with our own eyes, that your presence with us is more real than anything we're ever going to experience today. And help us sing like it's true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.